Welcome to Darkness Dwells, episode 32. I am your host, Jason White, and uh, who's that with me? It's Michael Shotryan. All right. Uh, this week, uh, we have another awesome show uh, with our continuation of November is Haunted. And uh, as a side note on month-long themes, before we get into anything, I urge everyone to go to Dread Media as uh, this December, they are dedicating their show to the Italian subgenre, the giallo subgenre of dark Ooh. cinema. <laughs> I can't wait to listen to that because, uh, well, Des always does these awesome month-long theme shows uh, or episodes, and those are always fun. Um, go and ahead. I really want to get into that whole Italian giallo. Um, you've you've really kind of turned me on to that, so I'm going <laughs> to have to tune into this. It's a ver- Italian cinema itself is a very interesting. Uh, uh, <laughs> the Italians have their own take on things, and uh, and so it's it's very fun to watch for that reason alone. <laughs> and and the whole, I mean, it, it's true. They have this really unique way of, way of looking, you know, at the world yeah. anyway. And then they get into horror, and it's just so unique. That oh. you know, the little little bits that I've, I've seen, and certainly yeah. I, I like Argento a lot. So yeah, just fantastic. The, the funny thing about Italian cinema is, uh, oftentimes, especially when it comes to like the horror, uh, there's there's oftentimes things that they just don't bother with, like plot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's a couple of I think like uh, the Beyond I think is one the one I'm thinking of. It's nothing but one horrific scene after another, and it there's no real story. It's weird. But, uh, yeah, okay, so uh, this week, uh, Michael and I, we talk about the 2009 film, A Haunting in Connecticut. And also, Yeah. And, uh, there's also the news and new releases, and also we have part two of The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde. Nice. So before we get into any of that, uh, let me tell you guys about our awesome sponsor, audible.com go to www.audibletrial.com slash darkness dwells where you can sign up for one free month uh, trial membership and basically you get with that is uh, one free audiobook of any any audiobook you want after that uh, it's approximately $15 a month and that $15 gets you basically, well, it's one credit, which gets you one audiobook. So $15 for one audiobook per month, that's pretty cheap, and uh, I highly recommend it. That's um, a very good deal, actually. It is. Yeah, it is. Uh, I mean, the costs of uh, even digital media is it's, it's pretty high. Um, so to get, like, an audiobook for $15, that's, that's a, that is a good deal. Even Check it though, out. Yeah. <clears throat> but I'm going to recommend a book uh, that uh, actually I have on my Audible list to listen to, but I have yet to to listen to it, but I'm really looking forward to it. And that is, uh, to go with our haunted theme, uh, Christine by Stephen King. Ooh, I love narr- that one. Yeah, it's narrated by Holter Graham, and it is 19 hours and 32 minutes of unabridged audiobook. And uh, here is a short synopsis. It was love at first sight. From the moment 17-year-old Arnie Cunningham saw Christine, he knew he would do anything to possess her. But Christine is no lady. She is Stephen King's ultimate vehicle of terror. (laughs) 
And I, right. I'd have to look this up, but I believe that Holter Graham was the uh, kid in Maximum Overdrive, Stephen King's one directorial effort that unfortunately wasn't so well received. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, lo- I have a soft spot for Maximum Overdrive. I saw that. So do I, I, actually. But uh, I guess other people didn't. Well, I think people are just looking into it, too. Even Stephen King doesn't like it. <laughs> but. <laughs> But he, I think he he doesn't like it for personal reasons. Um, but uh, I I like it because it's it's just fun. <laughs> There's like you're not supposed to take it seriously or anything. It's just goofy, you know, over the top. It's almost like a '50s horror movie, but with more gore. Very true. You know, it's it's got that sort of sort of vibe to it. Yeah. You know. Very much so. All right, so. Uh, before uh, we get on with the show, I just wanted to give a shout out to, uh, on a personal level, to everyone at uh, Media Bitch Literary Agency for getting my story, uh, my Christmas horror story, <laughs> Asleep and Without Peace, in their anthology, which is called Dichotomy of Christmas. Now you can. Oh, uh, congratulations! Yeah, thank you. Um, you can uh, you can pre-order this book right now. It's going to be released November 27th, and it has stories featured by authors such as Graham Masterton, uh, Michael Bray, Keelan Patrick Burke, and Jack Rollins, among many, many others. Um, I, I've read a lot of the anthology already, and it, it kicks some major ass. So, uh, so yeah, thanks to everyone at Media Bitch. And uh, I hope to work with them again in the future, and I'm sure I will. <laughs> Excellent news. Right, and a perfect so, um, sto- stocking stuffer, I can already yes, tell. for sure. <laughs> so, now on to the news. There wasn't very much uh, to talk about in the horror movie news, but there is one thing I found that was very interesting. Um, actually, uh, Keith, uh, Keith from Media Bitch, uh, sent this to me in a, in, in a message. Uh, I believe on Facebook. I can't remember. But um, and then I read up on it uh, elsewhere. And it reminded me to add this to this episode. But uh, Sean S. Cunningham, he's the uh, the guy who did the first uh, Friday the 13th, I believe. And uh, he is remaking the movie that we covered last week, House. Yeah, and isn't that crazy? Yeah, it is crazy. And he's going to have like a, a female lead instead of, I guess, uh, uh, Mr. Blonde Curly Hair. <laughs> <laughs> But this is this is fascinating because well, Sean Cunningham, um, you know he he's done movies like uh, like Friday the Thirteenth, like, and now he's going to be tackling a remake of House after so many years of doing stuff like that. Um, this is what uh, he has to say about it. Here, there's a quote here. He says, "I'm doing it right now. We are deeply in development." 
We worked on a new house for about four or five years ago and determined that the structure of the original is extremely strong and that just remaking it in modern times wasn't going to improve it and wasn't going to change it. Uh, it would have to be rethought and there had to be a really good reason to do it. Recently, we came up with, and it sounds so obvious, uh, what if we made a gender switch so that it's not a man in the house? Uh, he continues on to say that although they're not involved, imagine house starring uh, Kristen Wiig or Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> that would be weird. <laughs> but, you know, like, the Mel- actually, to to... As a side note, like uh, Melissa McCarthy, because because of the slapstick sort of humor of House, that might work really well. And it certainly answers my my question of if it was still going to be a horror comedy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he goes on to say, uh, it wouldn't be either one of them. Well, it could. I mean, that's a dream. But suddenly we realized, oh, wait, then everything would have to adjust. And also, if we did it that way, it would bring back the fun that House had. So that's the direction I'm committed in going. I would love to make that movie, and I hope to be able to keep all the elements of the personal story from the Bill Cat version and still have it be fun. So I think it might be a fun movie to watch when it's and if it's made, uh, <laughs> because it looks like they, they really want to uh, keep what, what made the first one so special, is that it was just so fun <laughs> and ridiculous. And it really just it floors me, because... I, I read the same thing, and it was just about, it was announced almost a, a week after we did our house show, and that was that was so completely unplanned, we just decided to do that, like really yeah. out of the blue. Yeah, I love it when things like that happen, <laughs> because it's just good timing, right? I mean, it, did, great, nothing, yeah. it, it did nothing to help the show, but... <laughs> <laughs> but it did. Uh, but it was just really awesome timing. It's like, oh, we just did that, you know. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, as I said, there was there wasn't much much else to really talk about in regards to horror movie news. I mean, there's a lot, but nothing that was really interesting, I, at least to me. So I'm going to move on now to the. Unless you have anything, do you have anything? Um, the only thing I would want to add is, as as you all know, I'm a I'm a twin. Peaks fanatic, mm-hmm. and and I just recently read that the Showtime revival has been pushed back to 2017, so it is no longer going to be next year, but the year after, so we have to wait a little while longer. God damn, why do they do that? Man, it's just, why did they have to tease me so hard that it was coming out soon? But, but we have the X-Files coming up very, very, very soon. <laughs> until, so, they say, until they say, oh, we can't do it now, we're going to have to wait another year. Oh, I, I would riot in the streets, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah. I would throw Molotov cocktails into <laughs> people's houses. <laughs> and if, if you knew my neighborhood, you would realize that no one would even notice. <laughs> I would have to say in my, my neighborhood, they would notice, and I would be shot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't be shot, but I'd probably be tasered. Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. So moving on to horror uh, book releases, and there's quite a few because, in my frustration, <laughs> in in trying to find horror uh, uh, horror book releases, I I googled uh, uh, horror publishing houses, 
and I came up with a, a site that had a list of uh, of place or uh, publishing houses that that publish horror novels and regularly. So I actually came up with a pretty decent list this week. Um, there was one release by Permuted Press, but it didn't look like it was horror or even dark fiction at all. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna list that this week. It was only the one, and that's rare because usually Permuted Press releases like three to four a week sometimes. Yeah, they certainly have an aggressive schedule. Oh, yes, indeed. And, uh, okay, so from Sinister Grin Press, we have Relic of Death by David Bernstein. And we also have Fort by Mark Allen Gunnels. From Severed Press, they Severed Press has been kind of quiet lately, too, when they usually do approximately the same as Permuted Press in like three to four a week uh, and for the last two or three weeks it's been nothing but now they have like five <laughs> so uh, what we have here is uh, K-Rex and remember this is from Severed Press uh, this is K-Rex a prehistoric thriller by LZ Hunter they also have Destiny Zombie Rules Book 4 by David Accord uh, also Outbreak The Mutation by Scott Scheuer and lastly this week from them is Dead Team Alpha 2 The Stronghold mostly uh, mostly zombie books uh, Permuted Press was or sorry uh, Severed Press was uh, known for their zombie books but they s- recently sort of broke away from that and went to giant monsters and now there's only seemingly one monster book from them this week and the rest are zombie books which is okay. I I hadn't actually noticed that, but but you're right. They did kind of move away from zombies a little bit, and that was their bread and butter. Yeah. Well, you know, the whole giant monster thing is was really hyped up over the last couple of years with Pacific movies like Pacific Rim and and the Godzilla remake. So I like I, my problem is that I always end up empathizing with the giant monster. I just, yeah, I me think too, it's, you know? I think it's so terrible that that we as humanity just gang up on them. But, I know, you but know, you know, just... it's also like uh, you know the giant monster. The bullets and the tanks—they don't even penetrate the the thing's skin. So, <laughs> unless you unless you create giant robots like in Pacific Rim to battle them. Yes, that was quite a movie, which which I did not like because they just beat up on the poor defenseless alien creature beings. True, but you know, <laughs> the, the... I'm going to start a union. <laughs> You, oh, you do that, Michael. But when these things come, they're going to crush you. No, no, I'm going to be, I'm going to be that guy that that uh, betrays humanity, and I'm on their side. So they'll give me special treatment and put me up in like this giant mansion with slaves and everything. No, <laughs> yes, you'll be a king, right? You'll be a king yeah, in their exactly. New, their I'll, I'll new have kingdom. like little princess layers around me, chained to chained to my neck. <laughs> <laughs> now that's an interesting image. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, okay. So, moving on. Cemetery Dance. Now, I don't know why I never check these guys out. They're huge. And uh, and I'm even subscribed to their magazine. And yet, I didn't think ever of checking out Cemetery Dance. <laughs> Duh. Anyway. Uh, so, Cemetery Dance released a couple this month. And uh, one of them is uh, Dominoes in Time by Matthew Warner. And the second one is Dark... At the end of the tunnel, and that's by Tyler or sorry Taylor Grant. 
And there's also a cemetery dance issue number 70 with stories by Jack Ketchum, Lucky McKee, and uh, P.D. Kasich. So that's definitely worth checking out. And from uh, Journal Stone, they released one this month, or this week actually, called The Boy Who Loved Death, and that's by Hal Duncan. Uh, Cheesine Publications. Now, this is another one I should have thought of because I, I have met uh, the people who started this up and run it. Currently, they won uh, the World Fantasy Award this year for their publication, um, and that's Brett, Brett and Sandra Savory. They live in. What Toronto. is it again? Uh, Cheesine. It's C H I Z I N E. Oh yes, I have heard of them. Yes, they publish uh, Michael Rowe's books, actually, his horror books. So, um, they released a uh, a really interesting-looking uh, anthology this week called uh, The Humanity of Monsters, with stories by the likes of uh, Neil Gaiman and Laird Barron. Um, let's see if I can see who else is in this one. I don't know, but with those two, there's bound to be more. <laughs> you know, and the title suggests that maybe they're on my side about this whole monster thing. Oh, maybe. Maybe indeed. Well, let's, let us take a look at the synopsis here. The synopsis says, We are all of us monsters. We are none of us monsters. Uh, through the work of 26 writers, emerging to award-winning and masters of their craft, the humanity of monsters plums the depths of humane monsters monstrous humans and the interstices between uh, monstrous heralds of change the sight of whom only children can survive monsters born of the battlefield in gunfire and frost and blood clothed in too familiar flesh monsters human and otherwise born of fear and love and retribution all wrapped tight in an inextricable uh, one for <laughs> from another that was an awkward sentence but yeah, okay, so there's, I guess, it's from the monster's point of view. I guess so. That sounds very interesting, and we certainly have a lot of uh, a lot of great authors involved in it. Yeah, definitely. I'm going to check that out, because, well, Cheesine does a lot of really interesting work, so uh, they uh, publish a lot of literary horror, you could call, you know, like a... a Shirley Jackson Award uh, would be very interested in looking at these, and they probably have. Not one for following awards too much, <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty sure the Shirley Jackson Awards has probably nominated, if not given awards to uh, Cheesine Publications. Alright, so moving on from Dark Regions Press, uh, we have another uh, anthology. And this one is called A Mountain Walked, and it is edited by S.T. Joshi, with uh, stories by Neil Gaiman, and another favorite of mine, Thomas Ligotti. I love Thomas Ligotti. He's, uh, he's seriously weird. <laughs> very weird. Very Lovecraftian sort of writer, too. I love, I love my weird. Yes, me too. All right, so... Uh, that is finally all of the uh, horror uh, literature new releases for the week of November 
what was it? I think the like the the sixteenth, and uh, and there's some of them in there because I didn't check earlier uh, that were from like November the second and third. But that's that's what we've got. So uh, how about we take a message break here, and uh, when we come back, we will talk about the movie A Haunting in Connecticut. Creepy. <laughs> Creepy sauce. <laughs> <laughs> Hammer Film Productions began in 1934, and after producing almost 200 films and television programs, the studio is still releasing and re releasing new and classic film titles. 1951 Down Place is the podcast that brings you the story of the great Hammer films, one movie at a time. Here are your hosts describing what Hammer means to them. First is Casey. Hammer means the beautiful and glamorous women of Hammer Horror, the engaging storytelling, and amazing period films. Joining him is Derek. Hammer means the incredible work of actors like Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, and even Michael Ripper. The gothic storytelling, the incredible music, and the set pieces. And finally, here's Scott. Um, well, Hammer means how to get a nail into a block of wood. This boy has a lot to learn. Join our hosts as they make their journey through the Hammer Films catalogue and discuss each film with critical opinion, historical facts, production notes, and other information about these classic films. 1951 Down Place can be found in iTunes or their website, www.1951downplace.com. Should I have said Hammer Pants? 1951 Down Place, the home of Hammer Films discussion. Within this old house live two residents. One of them is John Russell, composer, professor. The other has been dead for over 70 years. Claire, I'd like to talk to you about the house. How did you die? Whatever it is, it's trying desperately to communicate. What is it in that house, Claire? What is it doing? Why is it trying to reach me?
Many films will frighten you. But only a few can really terrify you. The Changeling. An experience beyond total fear. Why do bad things happen to good people? You're just a regular family like anybody else. We didn't ask for this, and we didn't deserve it. It's perfect. It's spacious and affordable. I'm just wondering, where's the catch? Well, it does have a bit of a history. First one upstairs, next first choice rooms. Matt, did you find a bedroom? Down here? It's nice and it's cool. Everything's back there. things under the floorboards. I've seen this kid almost every day since we've been here. You're scaring me. We'll join the club. So check it out. They've held seances in this house. People not only contacted the dead, but made things appear. There is something in this house. Something no longer living and not yet passed over. What happened in the house? Something evil. And it wants your son. You must get out now! Welcome back. So, you still hanging with me there, Michael? I'm still here. Yeah. Waiting. Waiting by your side. <laughs> so, um, a haunting in Connecticut. Now, I remember uh, when we first started talking about this movie, you said uh, this one scared the crap out of you. It did. It completely freaked me out. Um, did you Did you see it in the theaters? No, I didn't. I hadn't even heard of it until I... Um, I think I rented it at the library or something, but, uh, but yeah, I, I just came across it. Oh, just, I, I found it terrifying. I really did. Yeah. Um, so, uh, how, how long ago did you watch it before recently? Um, you see, the, now the interesting story, I watched this in 2010, okay. um, and I was, um, I was I was I was at my my rehab, you know, for my uh -huh. for my drinking problem. <laughs> I, it, yeah. It's no secret to anybody that that I talked to, and and I was uh, the the format of of the little house that I I was in 
was I, I had this one room, uh-huh. and then I had to, to go to the, get to the bathroom. I had to go down this long hallway, and all the other rooms were empty, and they would just, their doors would stand open. And so I watched this movie, The Haunting in, in Connecticut, which involves this basement room that's like all all locked up. And, mm-hmm. and I tell you, I was just terrified to go to the bathroom that night because I had to walk <laughs> past all these rooms and it just, it just freaked me the fuck out. It just, oh, it yeah. really felt personal to me because I just, <laughs> oh, shivers. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> it definitely has some creepy scenes. Um, the synopsis is, uh, after a family is forced to relocate for their son's health, they begin to experience supernatural behavior in their new home and uncover a sinister history. Now, I would have to say that that history is definitely sinister. <laughs> it certainly is. God. Uh, I have one thing to say. Box of eyelids. <laughs> oh, that's the that's the creepiest thing about this entire movie. That's just yeah. cringeworthy. Oh. I know, especially that one scene where uh, where you get to see... It's a dead person, but... Still, no, having, having someone's eyelid snipped off is... I didn't know they were going there because that scene is so so slow that you concentrate on the... The, the camera is focused on a dead person's eye as they uh, as somebody is peeling away the uh, uh, the eyelid with like these uh, metal clamps. And they do it so slowly that you're sort of focused on the eye and you're like, oh, that's a dead person's eye, that's nasty. And then you see something else slide in, but I was kind of focused on that dead person's eye. And then suddenly snip, and I was like, oh my god, no. Oh, yeah. It's how they pull it, I think. It's even worse than the snipping off. It's how they kind of pull it first. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, and that whole thing about the eyelids ties in really nicely to the twist ending that, you know, I... I just really I like how this movie is constructed. Um, yeah. Um so you rewatched it recently. Uh did you find it just as scary? Perhaps not as scary. You know, every time you I I think I think it might be true for everyone, but certainly when I rewatch movies, they don't have the same effect that they did yeah. the first first time or or second time. Although I am kind of a kind of a scary cat anyway. If I had watched it by myself at night, maybe I would have freaked out a little bit more. But uh, yeah. but when I did watch it again yesterday, what I did notice was maybe why I like it so much beyond just just the creepy factor because it really seems like a well constructed movie. I like I like the beginning because they do so much in so short of a time you know they start with that with that kind of creepy montage which what which kind of gets the point across and and then they just introduce these characters that and that the the son has cancer and they have to find this house so that they can be close to the hospital mm-hmm. and they do this with with a voiceover and with like a montage between him getting his treatment and her looking for the house and and she finds the house at seven minutes in you know they're moved in and creepy things are happening by the by the nine minute mark and with most any other movie especially haunted house movies you're waiting for a half an hour 
you know, to get everything going, to introduce the characters. And, and this movie just starts so fast and, and not only gets to the creepy part fast, but really gives a sense that the characters are real people. Um, I'm really impressed with that. Yeah. Um, I like, uh, I like the house itself. Um, because it it had a really unique sort of character um the the house actually becomes a bit of a character uh in the story uh but i i just like the layout and i like the things that they find in the house like uh like the box of um of photos of dead people cuz like that used to be a thing people used to take pictures of their loved dead ones at the, in you know in their coffin or sometimes they'd set them up in a pose um so it was interesting that they uh <laughs> that they found a box full of like <laughs> pictures of dead people <laughs> yeah uh, that was a really great touch yeah it was interesting cuz I, I always found that interesting that people people used to do that i, I don't know where or when that stopped or why it stopped it it's kind of understandable that it did stop but it's interesting that we that you know we did that with our photography at the very beginning. It really is. But uh, yeah, so they find they find some weird things, and weird things start happening. And I like in in a sense how they sort of played with you too, though, because uh, with the son uh, Matt, he's uh, he's got cancer, and it's not looking good for him. Um, but he's I forget exactly what it is, but they they think. There's a possibility that he's going to hallucinate and have you know visions and whatnot. So, so they play with your, uh, they play with you for at least the first half of the movie, and you're wondering if it's just him or if if the house is actually haunted. Yeah, and that was just I I find that really genius because it gives an excuse for some of the more gross out stuff to happen. Yeah. Because otherwise, you know, if you want, you know, like. Like when mom is cleaning up the basement and he sees this bloody, gore-filled, you know, mop head. You know, he sees it, you know, like she's <laughs> rubbing viscera all over. You know, yeah. in, an, in another kind of movie, you'd have to explain why that happened, how they cleaned up afterwards, how they rationalized it that they would stay living there after something like that happened. And, and having this, uh, this trial medication he, he's on, explain yeah. those scenes away was was really genius yeah <laughs> actually i made a note about that mopping scene because uh every like i worked as a cleaner for a long long time <laughs> so every time i see somebody using cleaning equipment in uh in movies they're inevitably always using it wrong <laughs> <laughs> like there's a scene in um oh what is it day after tomorrow or uh, I can't remember. Um, there's one of those, uh, like, natural disaster movies, like one of the big blockbusters, where uh, uh, where somebody's using a, a buffing machine in a hallway, and it's just sitting in one spot. <laughs> it's not moving anywhere. If you did that, you'd burn the floor. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but in this example, in this movie, the way she's mopping, like, you got to wonder, what in the hell is she Because she's not even ringing it. She's like... <laughs> and the sound effects, they're crazy. <laughs> like, uh, but the sound effects actually were on purpose because, you know, in his vision or whatever it is he's seeing, the, the soapy water becomes blood. So 
<laughs> the sound effects. And, the, and it's pretty chunky blood, if I remember oh, yeah. correctly. It's not like just just blood. There's some tissue and shit in there too. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you know, I I found it funny watching her mop because you know you don't mop that way. If you did, you'd just get the floor really wet, and that would. I mean, I guess it was a it was, because it was in the basement. It was a concrete floor, I believe. But still, you wouldn't want to get the floor that wet because there's no. issues of mold and whatnot. <laughs> And now, but, and now, with your your history of working working for a cleaner, I understand your inspiration for your short story, Chemical Burn. Now, yes, uh, very much so. Um, a free plug for for Jason White's uh, book, Isolation Stories. Absolutely <laughs> excellent. So. Well, thank you. But yeah, you're right. Um, Chemical Burn was a actually it's it's not autobiographical because in that story the they create a drug using various cleaning chemicals but uh you know, we never did that the the idea of that story was actually because you're constantly being affronted by these goddamn chemicals uh, whether <laughs> yeah. you want to or not and i was like what if you mixed the wrong thing and had like a weird hallucinogenic <laughs> response to it but anyways um yeah so i i'm just nitpicking when it comes to that um but <laughs> I, I, know, I just find that endlessly entertaining when I see that in movies. But uh, yeah, so I really enjoy the vi- the visions that he has. Like that goes into the whole imagery of the movie that uh, that that entertained me endlessly with this one because you know I was surprised to find that this is this movie is a PG thirteen film because with all the weird kind of dark stuff that's happening, you wouldn't think you'd think it would at least get like a a fourteen A. 14A rating or something um because you canadians uh, <laughs> i don't even know what that rating is <laughs> 14a actually might be more like restricted in the uh, americans uh we have our restriction uh like rated r but usually that's for some pretty hardcore uh adult stuff not like adult pornography or anything yeah. like that but like if it's like if the movie's like all gore and and boobies and and stuff like that, it's going to get a restricted. But if it's mm. uh, if it's got like some serious uh, like uh, I can't, y- y- you can still have a pretty brutal movie and have it rated 14A, which is 14 adult accompaniment. So you know. Uh, for for all the fans of American Horror Story, it's interesting that that you brought this up. I heard Ryan Murphy talking about about censors and and ratings and that. And apparently, you can get away with a lot of violence, but it's sex that uh, that will really get yeah. the attention of of the ratings board, and and certainly language too. I know that for a PG thirteen movie, you're allowed one one use of the word fuck. Oh, and yeah. and on the second one, that's an automatic R, and and there isn't any profanity that I can I can think of, and there's and there's no sex either. It's just all gore yeah. and 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 violent related images. So that's true. That, that's that says true. a lot about about what we worry about in in our in our country. Yeah, you can snip off eyelids. Yeah, you can't but you can't swear. <laughs> yep, exactly. They they even on on that uh, that first body scene. That that had its eyelids snipped up. They had they had the genitals covered, so you couldn't even. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't that's even true. See that. If it, if you know if if we we're really there, <laughs> they probably would just have the body. Yeah. On on the gurney or whatever on the slab, 
make or it or if it were a foreign movie, you know, if it were European, you'd see everything. Oh yeah, for sure. But yeah, I guess to keep the uh, but I'm you know what I'm glad movies like this get a PG uh, PG thirteen rating because uh, because it's really good uh, gateway. Uh, like a gateway drug to kids, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, to into the horror genre because they see something like this, they're going to be freaked out about it, and uh, because the movie is kind of garnered towards them. And, it definitely uh, is. A lot of horror is. Yeah, but it it works though. It's uh, you know for adults as well. Um, did you have any uh, any negative things to say about this one? I I really don't. I just, I'm I'm really a fan of this movie. Um, I guess I did think that the whole pseudo documentary aspect that's that's brought in only at the very beginning and the very end is really completely unnecessary. Um, mm. And perhaps the whole father's alcoholism that's not really necessary either. You know those things kind of cluttered yeah. up an otherwise streamlined film. But I'm not I'm not bothered enough by that, you know, to affect my, my opinion. The father actually bothered me, Peter Campbell, played by Martin uh Donovan. He uh I just don't think he was a good fit for the role. He he was too flat. He was awfully flat. Yeah. And it but but there's like a scene where um he shows a shitload of emotion. It's near the end. Um and I was a little surprised because his role is so flat until that part. But uh, maybe I don't know. I think I think it's just his face, maybe, <laughs> because he's got he's got this face that doesn't show emotion very well until until you look for it and you see it and you see his eyes watering or something and you're like, wow, he can actually act. <laughs> That's so neat. Yeah, but his, his, they, the film really could have worked as as a single mother. And, oh, and yeah. her family, because he wasn't in the movie very much at all, because they yeah, lived, exactly. they lived apart. And actually, his role was kind of confusing anyway, because of uh, his alcoholism and how it sort of plays into the story. I thought they were going somewhere with that, but they didn't go in that direction. So, so I guess, uh, I guess not. <laughs> but you know, I always like a little little alcoholic subplot. Oh yeah, <laughs> you know. I yeah, did that too. in my book, Blood Vengeance, and certainly, you know, Stephen King's touched on that, obviously in The Shining, but but Jim Garner in, in The Tommyknockers. Oh, yeah. That always kind of fascinates me. Yeah, alcoholism is, is uh, it's fun to read about. I don't know why that is. But I don't either, but, but it is to me. Yeah, and it, I liked it, his fit at the end, when about about all the lights being on. Yeah. You know? And there was no need for that scene, but I liked it. You gotta wonder if maybe if he was a happy drunk, maybe his wife wouldn't mind so much him being a drunk. I, you know, <laughs> probably. You know, I because think that's, that's probably the, true. If he didn't terrorize the family, yeah, because that's the first time he gets drunk, and how how long? Who knows, right? Yeah, uh, maybe a couple of years. I think it's been like a few years that he's been sober, and he gets drunk once, and when he. When he comes into the house, he's like, "Why are all the lights on?" And he's like, and they're all hiding in the bedroom, so yeah. you know that he obviously gets a little violent when he gets a little drunk. <laughs> so yeah, that was funny. Well, not funny. Well, it was funny in the context of the movie. In the in yeah, life, yeah, kind of funny. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to like, yeah. break all the light bulbs. Lights out. He said. Yeah, and then he's like <laughs> smashing them in the sink. 
Oh, that was good. Um, one other complaint that I have, although it, these are like just nitpicks, um, uh, but I, I felt I, I needed to uh, to express them, is that the Matt Campbell character, I, I thought he was good for the role, but he looked too healthy to be as sick as he was. I think, I think they could have maybe, well, he had that like rash and burn, I think it was from the medication, and that that sort of worked, but I think he needed to be maybe a bit skinnier, or at least maybe have them do something, maybe make his his skin pale, because his skin was, like, way too pink and healthy-looking, you know what I mean? There's a couple of scenes where he doesn't have a shirt on, and he just looks too healthy, you know what I'm saying? I thought the exact same thing. I hadn't noticed it until I watched yesterday, and you're exactly correct. There's a specific scene when he starts doing doing sit-ups, and yeah. he took his shirt off, and I thought, you know, if he was really this ravaged with cancer and with the medication, he'd be, he'd be, you know, skin and bones. Yeah. And and he probably isn't feeling well. I mean, he doesn't. He he can't even bear a, a hug from his mother, and and he's deciding to work out in the basement. That didn't didn't ring true. No, but at least he uh, he couldn't go through with the working out. He tried, and it just didn't work. That's true. Yeah, but. uh but there is one scene where he's like hanging on to his mother, I think it is, and he's wearing like this blue shirt. Um, they somehow made him look skinnier there. I don't know how, but you could almost see his hip bones protruding from the shirt. But then, when like you said later, when he takes his shirt off, he's almost toned, and uh, and you're like, dude. Like you can't be that sick, but you know you can't <laughs> ask actors to lose forty pounds to, <laughs> to yeah. look sick. So that's Tom what I was Hanks thinking. did it. Yeah, Tom Hanks. Uh, <laughs> Tom Hanks did it. Uh, a couple of other actors, like uh, uh, Batman. What's his name? Uh, Christian, Christian Bale. Yeah, Christian Bale did it for yeah, uh, the, Machinist. the Machinist. Yeah, oh, that's an awesome God, movie. I love one. that movie. Yeah, and he looks terrible in that movie. Oh, that's scary. His it is scary. Oh my God. And he did it again for another role in, uh, uh, like, a, when he was playing a Prisoner of War. I can't remember the name of that movie, but I didn't like that one very much, but he lost is a lot it, of weight for def- that one, too. Is it not Defiance, is it? I, I know which one you mean. No, I, I don't think it's Defiance. I, no. I can't, well, it might be, but I can't remember the name of it. I think that's it, so. the Daniel Craig one. I, yeah, I know which Daniel one you're talking Craig. about, though, yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, and there's another actor, um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, have you seen uh, Night... Uh, Nightcrawler? Yeah, Nightcrawler. He oh, lost like good 20, 40 pounds for that, too. Oh, he looks so greasy. He, yeah, and his eyes, like, <laughs> he's got these big googly eyes when he loses that much weight. <laughs> yeah, he does. You know, I'm still, I still want you to watch watch his movie, Enemy. And, oh, yeah. I, and I either want to do a show on that or write a blog about it. I think, uh, I think we should do a show on it because it's funny when you, well, you, you mentioned that that that's a good movie to see, and I was like, okay, I went and checked it out, and uh, I think it was uh, iTunes had it on sale for like six bucks to buy, and that you know to rent it, it would cost the same amount, so I just bought yeah, it. Really? But I, but I, I still haven't watched it. It's, but I have it. I own it. I will be watching it at some. Oh, point. I I can't <laughs> wait to hear hear your thoughts. I hope you like it. But I'm sure I will. Uh, I like weird movies like that one, and you know Jake Gyllenhaal. Uh, he's been doing a lot of weird movies lately, and I like that. Really, a fantastic actor. You know, he turned yeah. out to be really good, and yeah, he chooses some really, really great roles, some yeah, really alternative kind kind of stuff. I just watched him in, in Southpaw, 
and oh, yeah. uh, just just a lot of you know he and Johnny Depp both you know they they have fairly superstar status and they just keep choosing these these bizarre roles. I, yeah. I applaud them for that. I love actors who do that. Uh, Matthew McConaughey is another one who's been uh, choosing some pretty dark roles. And who also went through a big transformation for Dallas Buyers Club. Yeah, very much so. That was a good movie. Um, he was, like, phenomenal in that movie. Really, but, really excellent. But, yeah, you can't ask actors to, like, uh, like uh, Kyle Gallner, who plays Matt Campbell... It's like okay, you have to lose forty pounds for this role. You can't do that because it's unhealthy. <laughs> yeah, but, and, you know, and I get the impression, I guess, that that a lot of movies in in our genre are pretty, pretty quickly made. You know, yeah, probably. I mean, like like when Tom Hanks did that, they fam- you know, in Castaway, they famously took like a like a year off or something crazy between you know the two, yeah. two pieces of that of that movie. But, they would have to because of the uh, drastic change but there is still that part of me that wished that he you know was skin and bones and and terribly unhealthy looking (laughs) they could have done some things you know you you can do a lot with with makeup that would have would have gotten their point across a little bit more yeah definitely they could have done something because he's supposedly so close to death that he's living in that middle world so yeah the Chris Maloney look-alike that pops up in all these movies. Yeah, and that's actually one thing. The theme of this movie um, is one thing that I really enjoyed because uh, basically what this movie is about, it's about dying. And, uh, and you know, the, the concept that, <laughs> you know, being that close to death is kind of horrifying. Um I just really enjoyed that theme. Uh, I've been close to uh, people who have died before. Um, I was going out with this woman about 15 years ago, and uh, I was present at her grandmother's death. She she died of natural causes of old age, and uh, she was in a home, and uh, my girlfriend at the time got the call saying, you better come because she's not going to last until morning, and so we went. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I didn't stay in the room with them. It was like family thing. Uh, but I was in like the uh, little uh, uh, cafeteria that was like right near her room, though. And uh, it's a funny story about that. It's, like, it took about four or five hours for her to pass. But w- during that time period, I read I read Clive Barker's uh, uh, what's it called, the Hellraiser no- novella. Um, Hellbound Heart. Hellbound Heart, yeah, I read that during that time period, waiting, but that was interesting all on its own, <laughs> you know, like, you're, you're waiting for somebody to die while reading this horrific story, <laughs> but uh, but when she did pass, weird things kind of happened, um, and the biggest thing that I remember is that it was 3 a.m. when she did die, and birds outside her window started chirping, like morning birds, and it's way too early in the morning for them to be chirping, and they chirped for about ten minutes, and then and then it stopped. That's so weird. Yeah, uh, and uh, just looking at her when she was dead, she looked like she was in peace. And before she was dying, she kept looking off into the distance and smiling at something that we couldn't see. Yeah, it was uh, it was really strange. 
like the like the story that uh, I don't even I don't even know who that is. I call it, I call him the Chris Maloney lookalike. The story that he told about his dying wife, how she didn't even look at him at the mm-hmm. end. She just kept looking around the room at everyone else there. Who yeah, wasn't there. And that's what reminded me of that story. But uh, yeah, so there was like some realistic aspects to that. Um, and uh, it kind of hit home because of something that's going on now. I'm not going to get into it because it's a little private. But uh, but yeah, so it's a really f- interesting movie. Um, would you recommend it? Definitely. Very highly. Very, very highly. Um, I think the scares are really good. The ending is just really kick-ass. I mean, there's, there's bodies piling up. Um, there's screaming and fire and violins going. And, and the, the little... Uh, like the overarching story, like what's going on, the backstory about the funeral home and everything. I think that's interesting. And, and like we were talking about right here at the end, I think the dramatic story really holds up. I, yeah. I, I, they just did a good job of character development, making us care, making us interested, as well as having some good yelp out loud moments. Uh, I love this movie, really do. Yeah, it was a good one. Um, so, uh, what do you rate it? A five. Five oh. roller heads for, for this one. Cool. I, I will give it a four. Um, that's a good rating for me. And uh, I recommend it. I think it's uh, really good. I think uh, a lot of the younger generation who are potential horror fans should check this movie out. Yeah, it's better than, like, the Final Destinations and, you know, like, you know, those kind of series that, that the... That the that the teens these days go to see for for their scary movies, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, those movies have their purpose, and they're just silly fun. Which I love. Yeah, I mean, I love those movies, love them. But this yeah, but has got some more meat to it. Yeah, you can't dig into those movies like you can with these. Yeah. So, so yeah, that is that. Thanks for uh, thanks for talking about this one with me. Thanks for having me, um, and look for a new blog by me that's going to be coming out soon, I hope, and oh, yeah. until we talk again, stay Anything dark, my friend. Stay dark indeed. Cryogenics. Chris, do you realize what this is? You heard of freeze-dried coffee, right? Well, this is like a freeze-dried human, a corpsicle. All right, so uh, now we're going to move on to the second part to Oscar Wilde, the Canterville Ghosts. And uh, once again, this is brought to you by... Um, fuck, what are they called? LibriVox. <laughs> and it's read to you by a fellow named David Barnes. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. The Canterville Ghost by Oscar Wilde Chapter 4 The next day the ghost was very weak and tired. The terrible excitement of the last four weeks was beginning to have its effect. His nerves were completely shattered, and he started at the slightest noise. For five days he kept his room, and at last made up his mind to give up the point of the bloodstain on the library floor. If the Otis family didn't want it, they clearly did not deserve it. 
They were evidently people on a low, material plane of existence, and quite incapable of appreciating the symbolic value of sensuous phenomena. The question of phantasmic apparitions and the development of astral bodies was, of course, quite a different matter, and really not under his control. It was his solemn duty to appear in the corridor once a week, and to gibber from the large oriel window on the first and third Wednesdays in every month, and he didn't see how he could honourably escape from his obligations. It is quite true that his life had been very evil, but on the other hand he was most conscientious in all things connected with the supernatural. For the next three Saturdays, accordingly, he traversed the corridor as usual between midnight and three o'clock, taking every possible precaution against being either heard or seen. He removed his boots, trod as lightly as possible on the old worm-eaten boards, wore a large black velvet cloak, and was careful to use the rising sun lubricator for oiling his chains. I am bound to acknowledge that it was with a good deal of difficulty that he brought himself to adopt this last mode of protection. However, one night, while the family were at dinner, he slipped into Mr. Otis's bedroom and carried off the bottle. He felt a little humiliated at first, but afterwards was sensible enough to see that there was a great deal to be said for the invention, and, to a certain degree, it served his purpose. Still, in spite of everything, he was not left unmolested. Strings were continually being stretched across the corridor, over which he tripped in the dark, and on one occasion, while dressed for the part of Black Isaac, or the Huntsman of Hogley Woods, he met with a severe fall through treading on a butter-slide which the twins had constructed from the entrance of the tapestry chamber to the top of the oak staircase. This last insult so enraged him that he resolved to make one final effort to assert his dignity and social position, and determined to visit the insolent young Etonians the next night in his celebrated character of Reckless Rupert or the Headless Earl. He had not appeared in this disguise for more than seventy years, in fact, not since he'd so frightened pretty Lady Barbara Modish by means of it that she suddenly broke off her engagement with the present Lord Canterville's grandfather and ran away to Gretna Green with handsome Jack Castletown, declaring that nothing in the world would induce her to marry into a family that allowed such a horrible phantom to walk up and down the terrace at twilight. Poor Jack was afterwards shot in a duel by Lord Canterville, on Wandsworth Common, and Lady Barbara died of a broken heart at Tombridge Wells before the year was out. So, in every way, it had been a great success. It was, however, an extremely difficult make-up, if I may use such a theatrical expression in connection with one of the greatest mysteries of the supernatural, or, to employ a more scientific term, the higher natural world and it took him fully three hours to make his preparations. At last everything was ready, and he was very pleased with his appearance. 
The big leather riding boots that went with the dress were just a little too large for him, and he could only find one of the two horse pistols, but on the whole he was quite satisfied, and at a quarter past one he glided out of the wainscoting and crept down the corridor. On reaching the room occupied by the twins, which I should mention was called the blue bedchamber on account of the colour of its hangings, he found the door just ajar. Wishing to make an effective entrance, he flung it wide open, when a heavy jug of water fell right down on him, wetting him to the skin, and just missing his left shoulder by a couple of inches. At the same moment he heard stifled shrieks of laughter proceeding from the four-poster bed. The shock to his nervous system was so great that he fled back to his room as hard as he could go, and the next day he was laid up with a severe cold. The only thing that at all consoled him in the whole affair was the fact that he had not brought his head with him, for had he done so the consequences might have been very serious. He now gave up all hope of ever frightening this rude American family, and contented himself, as a rule, with creeping about the passages in list slippers, with a thick red muffler round his throat for fear of draughts, and a small arquebus, in case he should be attacked by the twins. The final blow he received occurred on the 19th of September. He'd gone downstairs to the great entrance hall, feeling sure that there, at any rate, he would be quite unmolested, and was amusing himself by making satirical remarks on the large Saroni photographs of the United States minister and his wife, which had now taken the place of the Canterville family pictures. He was simply but neatly clad in a long shroud spotted with churchyard mould, had tied up his jaw with a strip of yellow linen, and carried a small lantern and a sexton's spade. In fact, he was dressed for the character of Jonas the Graveless, or the corpse-snatcher of Chertsey Barn, one of his most remarkable impersonations, and one which the Cantervilles had every reason to remember, as it was the real origin of their quarrel with their neighbour, Lord Rufford. It was about a quarter past two in the morning, and as far as he could ascertain, no one was stirring. As he was strolling towards the library, however, to see if there were any traces left of the blood-stain, suddenly there leaped out on him from a dark corner two figures who waved their arms wildly above their heads and shrieked out BOO in his ear. Seized with a panic which, under the circumstances, was only natural, he rushed for the staircase, but found Washington Otis waiting for him there with the big garden syringe, and being thus hemmed in by his enemies on every side, and driven almost to bay, he vanished into the great iron stove, which fortunately for him was not lit, and had to make his way home through the flues and chimneys, arriving at his own room in a terrible state of dirt, disorder, and despair. After this he was not seen again on any nocturnal expedition. The twins lay in wait for him on several occasions, and strewed the passages with nutshells every night, to the great annoyance of their parents and the servants, but it was of no avail. 
it was quite evident that his feelings were so wounded that he would not appear. Mr. Otis consequently resumed his great work on the history of the Democratic Party, on which he had been engaged for some years. Mrs. Otis organized a wonderful clambake, which amazed the whole county. The boys took to La Crosse Euchre, poker, and other American national games, and Virginia rode about the lanes on her pony, accompanied by the young Duke of Cheshire, who had come to spend the last week of his holidays at Canterville Chase. It was generally assumed that the ghost had gone away, and in fact Mr. Otis wrote a letter to that effect to Lord Canterville, who, in reply, expressed his great pleasure at the news, and sent his best congratulations to the minister's worthy wife. The Otises, however, were deceived, for the ghost was still in the house, and though now almost an invalid, was by no means ready to let matters rest, particularly as he heard that among the guests was the young Duke of Cheshire, whose grand-uncle, Lord Francis Stilton, had once bet a hundred guineas with Colonel Carberry that he would play dice with the Canterville ghost, and was found the next morning lying on the floor of the card-room in such a helpless paralytic state that, though he lived on to a great age, he was never able to say anything again but double sixes. The story was very well known at the time, though, of course, out of respect to the feelings of the two noble families, every attempt was made to hush it up, and a full account of all the circumstances connected with it will be found in the third volume of Lord Tattle's Recollections of the Prince Regent and His Friends. The ghost, then, was naturally very anxious to show that he had not lost his influence over the Stiltons, with whom, indeed, he was distantly connected, his own first cousin having been married en second noce to the Sir de Bulkley, from whom, as everyone knows, the Dukes of Cheshire are linearly descended. Accordingly, he made his arrangements for appearing to Virginia's little lover in his celebrated impersonation of the Vampire Monk, or the Bloodless Benedictine, a performance so horrible that when old Lady Startup saw it, which she did on one fatal New Year's Eve in the year 1764, she went off into the most piercing shrieks, which culminated in violent apoplexy, and died in three days, after disinheriting the Cantervilles, who were her nearest relations, and leaving all her money to her London apothecary. At the last moment, however, his terror of the twins prevented his leaving the room, and the little duke slept in peace under the great feathered canopy of the royal bedchamber, and dreamt of Virginia. Chapter 5 a few days after this, Virginia and her curly-haired cavalier went out riding on Brockley Meadows, where she tore her habit so badly in getting through a hedge that on their return home she made up her mind to go up by the back staircase so as not to be seen. As she was running past the tapestry chamber, the door of which happened to be open, she fancied she saw someone inside— and thinking it was her mother's maid, 
who sometimes used to bring her work there, looked in to ask her to mend her habit. To her immense surprise, however, it was the Canterville ghost himself. He was sitting by the window, watching the ruined gold of the yellowing trees fly through the air, and the red leaves dancing madly down the long avenue. His head was leaning on his hand, and his whole attitude was one of extreme depression. Indeed, so forlorn and so much out of repair did he look, that little Virginia, whose first idea had been to run away and lock herself in her room, was filled with pity, and determined to try and comfort him. So light was her footfall, and so deep his melancholy, that he was not aware of her presence till she spoke to him. "'I'm so sorry for you,' she said. "'But my brothers are going back to Eton to-morrow, "'and then, if you behave yourself, no one will annoy you.' "'It is absurd asking me to behave myself,' he answered, "'looking round in astonishment at the pretty little girl "'who'd ventured to address him. "'Quite absurd. "'I must rattle my chains and groan through keyholes and walk about at night, "'if that is what you mean.' It is my only reason for existing. It is no reason at all for existing, and you know you've been very wicked. Mrs. Omni told us the first day we arrived here that you'd killed your wife. Well, I quite admit it, said the ghost petulantly, but it was a purely family matter and concerned no one else. It is very wrong to kill anyone said Virginia, who at times had a sweet Puritan gravity, caught from some old New England ancestor. "'Oh, I hate the cheap severity of abstract ethics. My wife was very plain, never had my ruffs properly starched, and knew nothing about cookery. Why, there was a buck I had shot in Hogley Woods, a magnificent pricket, and do you know how she had it sent to table? Oh, however, it is no matter now, for it is all over. And I don't think it was very nice of her brothers to starve me to death, though I did kill her. Starve you to death? Oh, Mr. Ghost, I mean, Sir Simon, are you hungry? I have a sandwich in my case. Would you like it? "'No, thank you. I never eat anything now. "'But it is very kind of you all the same, "'and, and you are much nicer than the rest of your horrid, "'rude, vulgar, dishonest family.' "'Stop!' cried Virginia, stamping her foot. "'It is you who are rude and horrid and vulgar, "'and as for dishonesty, you know you stole the paints out of my box to try and furbish up that ridiculous bloodstain in the library. First you took all my reds, including the vermilion, and I couldn't do any more sunsets. Then you took the emerald green and the chrome yellow, and finally I had nothing left but indigo and Chinese white, and could only do moonlight scenes, which are always depressing to look at and not at all easy to paint. I never told on you, though I was very much annoyed, 
and it was most ridiculous the whole thing, for who ever heard of emerald green blood? Well, really, said the ghost rather meekly, what was I to do? It is a very difficult thing to get real blood nowadays. And as your brother began it all with his paragon detergent, I certainly saw no reason why I should not have your paints. As for colour, that is always a matter of taste. The Cantervilles have blue blood, for instance, the very bluest in England. But I know you Americans don't care for things of this kind. You know nothing about it, and the best thing you can do is to emigrate and improve your mind. My father will be only too happy to give you a free passage, and though there is a heavy duty on spirits of every kind, there will be no difficulty about the custom house, as the officers are all Democrats. Once in New York, you are sure to be a great success. I know lots of people there who would give a hundred thousand dollars to have a grandfather, and much more than that to have a family ghost. I don't think I should like America. I suppose because we have no ruins and no curiosities, said Virginia satirically. No ruins, no curiosities, answered the ghost. You have your navy and your manners. Good evening. I will go and ask Papa to get the twins an extra week's holiday. Please don't go, Miss Virginia. He cried, "I'm so lonely and so unhappy, and I really don't know what to do. I want to go to sleep, and I cannot." Oh, that's quite absurd! You've merely to go to bed and blow out the candle. It's very difficult sometimes to keep awake, especially at church, but there's no difficulty at all about sleeping. Why, even babies know how to do that, and they're not very clever. I have not slept for three hundred years, he said sadly, and Virginia's beautiful blue eyes opened in wonder. For three hundred years I have not slept, and I am so tired. Virginia grew quite grave, and her little lips trembled like rose leaves. She came towards him, and kneeling down at his side, looked up into his old withered face. Poor, poor ghost, she murmured, have you no place where you can sleep? Far away, beyond the pine woods, he answered in a low, dreamy voice. There is a little garden. There the grass grows long and deep. There are the great white stars of the hemlock flower. There the nightingale sings all night long. All night long he sings, and the cold crystal moon looks down, and the yew tree spreads out its giant arms. Over the sleepers. Virginia's eyes grew dim with tears, and she hid her face in her hands. You mean the garden of death? She whispered. Yes, death. Death must be so beautiful, to lie in the soft brown earth, 
with the grasses waving above one's head, and listen to silence, to have no yesterday and no tomorrow, to forget time, to forget life, to be at peace. You can help me, you can open for me the portals of death's house, for love is always with you, and love is stronger than death is. Virginia trembled, a cold shudder ran through her, and for a few moments there was silence. She felt as if she was in a terrible dream. Then the ghost spoke again, and his voice sounded like the sighing of the wind. Have you ever read the old prophecy on the library window? Oh, often, cried the little girl, looking up. I know it quite well. It's painted in curious black letters, and is difficult to read. There are only six lines. When a golden girl can win, prayer from out the lips of sin, when the barren almond bears, and a little child gives away its tears, then shall all the house be still, and peace come to Canterville. But I don't know what they mean. They mean, he said sadly, that you must weep with me for my sins, because I have no tears, and pray with me for my soul, because I have no faith, and then, if you have always been sweet and good and gentle, the angel of death will have mercy on me. You will see fearful shapes in darkness, and wicked voices will whisper in your ear, but they will not harm you. For against the purity of a little child, the powers of hell cannot prevail. Virginia made no answer, and the ghost wrung his hands in wild despair as he looked down at her bowed golden head. Suddenly she stood up, very pale, and with a strange light in her eyes. I'm not afraid, she said firmly, and I will ask the angel to have mercy on you. He rose from his seat with a faint cry of joy, and taking her hand, bent over it with old-fashioned grace, and kissed it. His fingers were as cold as ice, and his lips burned like fire, but Virginia did not falter as he led her across the dusky room. On the faded green tapestry were broidered little huntsmen. They blew their tasseled horns, and with their tiny hands waved to her to go back. Go back, little Virginia, they cried, go back. But the ghost clutched her hand more tightly, and she shut her eyes against them. Horrible animals with lizard tails and goggle eyes blinked at her from the cavern chimney-piece and murmured, Beware, little Virginia, beware, we may never see you again. But the ghost glided on more swiftly, and Virginia did not listen. When they reached the end of the room he stopped and muttered some words she could not understand. She opened her eyes and saw the walls slowly fade away like a mist, and a great black cavern in front of her. A bitter cold wind swept round them, and she felt something pulling at her dress. 
Quick, quick, cried the ghost, or it will be too late. And in a moment the wainscoting had closed behind them, and the tapestry chamber was empty. End of chapter 5 So, that is episode 32, and there's only one more to go for the uh, November is Haunted month-long theme. Uh, I can't believe how fast this month has gone. Seems like the older I get, the faster the years get. Well, actually, we already know that that happens, but it's really annoying. I wish things would kind of slow down just a little bit. Alright, so uh, if you want to help out the show, you can do so very easily by uh, by going to your iTunes account, uh, looking up the Darkness Dwells podcast, and subscribe to the show, rate it, and review it. Um, this helps iTunes uh, sort of, you know, give other people who don't know about the show direction to uh, listening to this show, and that would be greatly appreciated if you could do that. Thank you. Um, so if you want to contact the show, you can do so, darknessdwells74 at gmail.com. Visit the website, www.wheredarknessdwells.com. Uh, Twitter feed is at darkdweller74, and uh, there's a Facebook group you can search for, and you will find... I would give you the address, but it's all numbers <laughs> that I can see, uh, so nobody's going to remember that. I don't know how to change that, or if I'm even seeing it correctly, so... But there is a Facebook page that you can like, and uh, we keep you pretty well updated there, and uh, that is uh, www.facebook.com slash wheredarknessdwells. So uh, stick around. We got a lot of interesting things coming up in the future, and uh, I can't wait. So we will see you again. Good night. And sweet, and sweet, sweet dreams. dreams.